listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Hi, I'm Alicia Young. I'll be reading um, Romans 4 verses 13 to 25 today. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were not written not for the sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks for that reading, Alicia, and special thanks to the Young family for providing all of our scripture readings for the month of June. You guys rock. <laughs> Uh, we are wrapping up chapter 4 of the book of Romans today. Uh, if you've been following along through this series, you already know that I've been encouraging us all to participate from home by reading the book of Romans. The first section we've been focusing on is chapters 1 through 4, which we're wrapping up today. So if you've been following along at home, I'd encourage you to move on and start reading the next section, Romans chapters 5 to 8. The way we've been doing this is we're reading each section over and over again as we progress through it here in worship together to really like immerse ourselves in the text. Because Romans is a tough book. It's a, it's a hard book to read. The flow of Paul's argument here can be really challenging to follow. But I guarantee you, if you read this next section along with us as we work through it together here in worship, you know, maybe read it once a week. You could read a chapter a day, and then when you hit chapter 8, go back and restart with chapter 5. If you do that, I guarantee that the book of Romans is going to start to make more sense, and you're going to be able to connect more and more dots as we work our way through this book together. Now, of course, before we start chapter 5, we got to finish chapter 4, and our scripture reading for today comes from the end of chapter 4, and it really draws on and develops a lot of the main points and ideas that we talked about last week. Paul has just presented this argument in the opening chapters of Romans that, that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all on equal footing, and salvation is not found through the law, but by faith. 
And in chapter 4, Paul proves his point. He, he backs up his argument and gives us a proof text by pointing to Abraham, the ancient ancestor of the Israelites, who was declared righteous by God centuries before the law even existed on the basis of faith. That's really the core point of this whole passage. That's, that's what Paul's getting at here. It's about God's promise to Abraham, Abraham's response in faith, and how the Christians in Rome share in that faith and continue on in the faith of Abraham by putting their faith in Christ instead of the law. I know that is a whole lot of info, maybe hard to follow. We covered it all last week, so you can go back and listen to that sermon if you need a refresher. But for this week, I actually want to focus on something else Paul is up to in this passage, especially toward the end of the passage. It's, it's something that's really cool, at least to me. Uh, it's really subtle and easy to miss, but it's really, really important. And it's the parallel Paul is drawing between Abraham and Jesus. What does Abraham have to do with Jesus? What does the ancient patriarch of God's people have to do with the Messiah who died on a Roman cross? That's the question that should be on our minds as we come here to the end of Romans 4. Hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, this is God's promise to Abraham, so numerous shall your descendants be. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old. Apologies to any centenarians who are watching today. (laughs) Or when he considered the barrenness of his wife Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. Therefore, Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. There's something really subtle happening here. It's super easy to miss. And it lies in the way Paul is connecting Abraham and Jesus. Paul is using a design pattern from Scripture to connect Abraham's faith in God with our faith in God's raising Christ from the dead. If you're not familiar with the concept of a design pattern, that is okay, because you are about to get a crash course in biblical design patterns right now. Design patterns are a concept that actually come to us from the world of architecture, And it's the thing that enables you to identify a specific type of building or structure based on commonalities that structure shares with other buildings or structures. Think of like a Victorian house. Our little village of Brockport is just loaded with Victorian homes. I live in one of them built in the 1840s. As you drive through Brockport, you see all these beautiful old Victorian homes everywhere. They're practically on every street. But how do we know they're Victorian homes? Like, not every Victorian looks the same, right? No, not at all. In fact, Victorian homes come in 
many different shapes and sizes. There's a wide variety of different colors, different layouts, different uh, uh, accents and trim. Victorian architecture is one of the most varied and diverse form of architecture out there. In fact, it's, it's very rare to find two Victorians that look exactly alike. And yet, the moment you see a Victorian house, you know you're looking at a Victorian house. Even if it looks different from every other Victorian house on the block, and that's because it follows the design pattern. You know you're looking at a Victorian when you see those steep, pointed roofs, right? <laughs> like, like usually slate roofs. The outside of the house usually has uh, bright, often contrasting colors. There's, there's lots of rounded angles, maybe a tower or two, big bay windows, maybe some stained glass, decorative woodwork. When you go inside a Victorian, you usually find lots of big rooms with really high ceilings, doors everywhere. My house is an old Victorian. There are doorways everywhere. We've got like like a stack of like 10 or 12 old wood doors piled up in our basement because there are so many doorways. Every room has a door. It's like the opposite of open concept. That's Victorian. These are the design patterns of a Victorian house. That's why when you see a Victorian, you know you're looking at a Victorian, even if it looks different from every other Victorian you've ever seen because it follows the design pattern. The Bible is loaded with design patterns. There are certain repeated themes, images, common plot points that echo through the biblical text. And if you read scripture enough, you're going to start to pick up on them. Take Abraham and Sarah as an example. An elderly couple with no children, barren. But then God promises to give them a child to turn their descendants into many nations. Abraham and Sarah wait decades for this promise to be fulfilled, by the way. But then finally, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, they have a son named Isaac, the child of promise. Then a few chapters later, we meet Jacob, Abraham's grandson. He's got two wives, Leah and Rachel, but uh uh-oh. Rachel is barren. She and Jacob are unable to conceive children until Joseph is born, the son of Jacob and Rachel, who would go on many years later to save his entire family from famine. Then even later in the Bible, you you hit a book like 1 Samuel and you meet Hannah, a woman who, you guessed it, is having trouble getting pregnant. You, You seeing a theme here? Yeah. But then one day, Hannah has an encounter with God. She she gets pregnant, and she gives birth to a child named Samuel, who would go on to become one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. They named two books of the Bible after this guy. If we read the Bible well, we're going to start to pick up on these design patterns. And so when you get to the opening of of a book like Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke, and you meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple who have had difficulty conceiving children, a little alarm should start going off in your head. Oh, we've seen this before. An elderly couple, barren, no children. Hmm, there's going to be a kid born here, and that kid is going to be important. John the Baptist. 
Get it? You see how that works? That's a design pattern. Another really good example from the Bible would be sibling rivalry. The, the plot of scripture is often driven forward by sibling rivalry. It begins all the way back in Genesis with Cain and Abel. If you know that story, you know that Cain takes his brother Abel out into a field and he kills him. Tragic story of violence between the first siblings. But then a few chapters later, we meet Jacob and Esau, twin brothers who come out of the womb wrestling with each other. And then as young men, Jacob cons Esau out of his inheritance, which is a pretty crappy thing to do. But this leads Esau into a rage when he's, you guessed it, out in a field plotting to kill his brother, just like Cain and Abel. You see that connection? Yeah. Then years later, when, when Jacob and Esau reunite and are, are reconciled, that also happens in a field. Then a little bit later, you get Joseph and his brothers. Legendary sibling rivalry there. Joseph's brothers are out working in a field, plotting to kill Joseph, and they end up selling him into slavery. There's also David and his brothers. All these stories of sibling rivalry in the Bible. Till we get to the Gospels, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. This story about two brothers. One of whom goes off and squanders his half of the family fortune, but then when the prodigal returns home and his father throws this big party in his honor, where's the other brother? The good one, the, the one who stayed home. Oh, he's out in the field burning with rage against his brother. Do you see a pattern here? Yes, design patterns. These design patterns in scripture are helpful because they, ha they help us to read the Bible better. The more you learn to recognize these patterns, the more you're going to make connections, the more the dots are going to start to line up, and the more familiar you're going to be with the whole story of the Bible. But design patterns can play another role, and that's in shaping our imaginations. If we are steeped in Scripture enough, if we know these stories and understand the flow of the biblical narrative, then we're actually going to be able to locate ourselves in that story. We might even start to see some of these same design patterns reflected in the world around us. Take the current debate on immigration as an example. In the Bible, we see a ton of immigrants. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are immigrants. <clears throat> Their son Isaac becomes an immigrant uh, and a refugee fleeing during a time of famine. Jacob and his family are immigrants. The, the people of Israel are immigrants. Um, the, the holy family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, become refugees immigrating to Egypt to escape the violence of King Herod. It's no wonder the Bible is loaded with laws about caring for and protecting immigrants. That's a design pattern. And so when we look at our world today and the state of immigration and, and refugees, we should see that same design pattern. When we see immigrants trying to make it to the U.S., we should see Abraham and Sarah. When we see families fleeing violence in Latin America trying to get to safety, we should see Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. This is how design patterns work. And a lot of those design patterns from Scripture have great relevance in our lives today. Now that we're all familiar with, with design patterns, I want to read the end of Romans chapter 4 again. And I want you to see if you can pick up on the design pattern Paul is drawing on here. 
Hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words that was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Did you catch the design pattern there? I, I highlighted it to help you out, which is cheating, I know, but let's break it down. <clears throat> Abraham believed God's promise that he would become the father of many nations, that he would have a son, even though in Paul's words, as a hundred-year-old man, Abraham was already as good as dead. Paul's words, not mine, all right? Even though it took decades for that promise to be fulfilled, Abraham had faith. He, he trusted because he knew that God can bring life out of death. In the exact same way, we trust. We put our faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead because we know that God can bring life from death. That's the design pattern. God's ability to bring new life out of death. And that's the design pattern that Paul is using to link Jesus and Abraham. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90 and barren. Now, hitting 90 or 100 today is a, is a pretty good lifespan. 4,000 years ago, before, like, medicine, Abraham and Sarah were practically the walking dead. I mean, they would have, they would have long outlived their contemporaries. And yet God takes the barren womb of Sarah and the dry, dangly bits of Abraham and from that seemingly lifeless source, God creates new life. The same God who brought new life out of Sarah's womb is the God who entered into the tomb of Jesus after he had died on the cross and brought new life for the entire world. Life coming from death. This is one of the most core, important design patterns in the entire Bible, and it runs throughout the Bible. You've got Abraham and Sarah, and every other story of God using a barren couple to produce new life. Then you've got the story of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, believed to be dead by the rest of his family, comes close to death time and time again, only to end up bringing new life to his entire family during a time of famine. Then there's the Exodus story where the, the Israelites spend 40 years wandering through the desert. The, the generation of Hebrew slaves that God liberated from Egypt and that Moses led into the wilderness, most of them died in the wilderness. But that brought about a new generation who had never known slavery in Egypt that God would then lead into the promised land. And of course, there's also the exile, probably the most traumatic event recorded in the Bible. When Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, its inhabitants slaughtered, 
and the tiny remnant of survivors carried off into exile in Babylon. To anyone watching, that would have been the end of the story. But 70 years later, the descendants of that remnant returned to the land, rebuilt the temple, and found new life. This is the story of the Bible. Whether we're talking about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, or Jonah being swallowed by a whale, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into a fiery furnace, even the Son of God facing death on a cross. All these stories follow the exact same design pattern of a God who brings new life out of death. So if the Bible is our story, if we are a people of the book, if our lives, our hearts, and our imaginations are supposed to be shaped by Scripture, what do we do when we encounter death? We've seen a lot of death in the past few months. I'm not one to reminisce about the good old days or complain about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but even I have to admit that 2020 has been a bummer of a year. Pandemic. Violence against people of color. Violence against peaceful protesters. Riots and looting in the street. <clears throat> we are living through a time of massive violence, darkness, and upheaval. Death. And how does the world around us respond? How does society at large respond to all this violence and instability? Despair? Indifference? Sensationalism? Some denial? Hopelessness? Yeah, we've seen a wide variety of responses to our present darkness. But none of those responses are good options for us. As a community shaped by the Bible, a community founded on the hope of a God who brings life out of death. When we see death, when we see violence and chaos, we should not lose hope. We should be clinging to hope because we know that death is a gateway to new life. For a lot of folks out there, death is just the end of the story. But for us, in the hands of a God who raises the dead, death is the beginning of something new. Whether we're talking about coronavirus, or riots, or systemic racism, when we encounter death, our first response should be to discern where God is at work to bring about new life. And step two, by the way, is to join in that work. To work for justice for all people. To stand against violence and promote true peace. To be on the front lines of a crisis like coronavirus, checking in on elderly neighbors, sharing resources with people who are in need, cooking dinner for a family down the street, supporting doctors and nurses however we can, comforting those who are ill or in mourning. Because that's the design pattern. That's what we see in scripture from Abraham to Jesus to us. Where is God at work bringing about new life from death?
We've seen some horrible stuff in recent months. 125,000 people dead from coronavirus, and that's just in our country. A lot of those deaths were preventable. The murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, many, many, many more. Rubber bullets and flash grenades used against peaceful protesters. Businesses set on fire, windows smashed out. None of this is good, by the way. None of this is acceptable. All of it is marked by sin and violence and death. But as Christians, we know that death can be the doorway to new life, to new structures, new institutions, maybe even a whole new society that comes just a tiny bit closer to that promise of God's kingdom coming and God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes we have to wander through the wilderness for 40 years before you get to the promised land. Sometimes the Babylonians have to sweep through and burn it all down before it can be rebuilt. Sometimes we wait decades for the child of promise. And sometimes the Son of God lies dead in a tomb. The world looks at all these things and sees the end of the story. But we know that in God's hand, it's only the beginning the beginning of a new life, the birth pangs of a new creation. That's the design pattern. That's what Paul is getting at here in Romans chapter 4. That's what Abraham and Jesus have in common. The promise of a God who brings new life from death. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hope of life coming from death. Thank you for the faith of Abraham and of Sarah, who waited decades for a child. Thank you for the faith of liberated slaves who wandered through the desert for 40 years so that their children could have a chance at life. Thank you for prophets who faced down fiery furnaces and dens of lions, and for the faith of captives in Babylon yearning to go home. Give us that faith, Lord. Help us to hold fast to the resurrection of Jesus and the promise that you are a God who brings life out of death. Help us to not only hold that faith in our hearts, but to put it into practice wherever we encounter death in your creation. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website brockportfirstbaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.